0: Near the end of Jesus' life, something happened that I always thought was, was strange. And uh, it, this story that I'm talking about appears in all four Gospels, so it stuck out to each Gospel writer too. It's one of the things they all included. It's the last night of Jesus' life in the upper room during that evening where he instituted the Lord's Supper, why we celebrate communion. But before Jesus got into the, the, the wine and bread as symbols portion of the evening, he said this. He looked at all of his friends up there and he said, Tonight, one of you is going to betray me. Now, that's not the strange part because Jesus said shocking stuff all the time. What always shocks me every time I read it is the disciples' response. Every time I'm reading one of the Gospels, I half expect this will be the time where they respond the way I would expect them to. They hear him say, one of you is going to betray me, and I I expect him to go, well, it's not going to be me, not this guy. Somebody else might, but not me. You now Peter responded that way about something earlier. But that night, to that statement, when Jesus is one of you is going to betray me, they all start to look around and say stuff like, it's not me, is it? I mean, surely, I mean, I couldn't do something like that. Could I? At least 11 of them had to sort of want to say that. I could never. But something stops them. They know Jesus has supernatural insight into the core of their souls. And when they hear him say, one of you is going to betray me, all they can do is just like, oh man, I hope it's, I hope it's not me. They seem to understand Somewhere the stuff of a sin that big might be in here. The reason I thought about that story is because we have come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's, it's a very famous passage from David's life. And it is the scariest story in the books of First and Second Samuel. Because today, we're going to see David commit a rather frightening list of sins. And the scary part is that it's David that sins them. It's David. The man who pursues after God's heart. The guy with enough faith to stare down the giant The guy with enough restraint to refuse to kill King Saul on multiple occasions, even though Saul's constantly trying to kill him. He just waits on the Lord. And today, David will become an adulterer, a schemer, a murderer, a tempter. And I think it's a passage that should make us say, I could never do anything like that. Could I? Are we really made of like better stuff than David is? Do we have more self-discipline than David did? Or are the seeds of really awful stuff in the best of us? This chapter is usually called the David and Bathsheba story. And for good reason, it's what I'm calling it too, because it's a lot shorter than what I think maybe the full title should be. It is the David and Bathsheba story. But in Second Samuel, there are really four separate David and so-and-so stories. We're going to take them one at a time. We're going to read about David and Bathsheba. Then we're going to read about David and Uriah. Then we'll read about David and Joab before reading about David and God. We start with the David and Bathsheba story. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, the first five verses read this way. And it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged the city of Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one told him, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, then she returned to her house. Verse five, the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Verse 1 connects this passage to what we read about last time we were in 2 Samuel, which is two weeks ago now for us. Um, In in chapter 10, there was fighting between Israel and a couple of other people groups, one of which was was the Ammonites. And I mentioned then, those tensions were going to flare up again, and here they are. And... In the ancient world, everywhere basically, major military conflicts just didn't happen during the winter, right? It was either, like in this part of the world, it was too cold, right? Um, There wasn't enough growing to supply an army. That's why George Washington and the boys had Valley Forge, right? Where they just tried to go someplace and survive during the winter. That was the only thing they did. In other parts of the world, like over here, it's too wet, you can't move an army, and you still can't supply an army. So when, uh, during winter, fighting just didn't happen. But when spring rolled around, that was the time when, uh, when, when wars um, began again. And so we're told that during this particular spring, Israel had some military business to take care of with the Ammonites, And usually kings led their nations in battle. But this time, David stayed home. He sent sent his head general out in charge of the military, a guy named Joab, who is David's nephew. And David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, I think that would have been okay for David to stay at home had he had pressing matters to attend to that really required the king's presence. But from what we're told here, that doesn't seem to be the case. Because even though, even though all of Israel, all able-bodied men have been called into service, this is a, this is a big deal that's going on on the battlefield. David stays home, but check out verse 2. When evening came, David got out of bed. Well, that seems strange. It doesn't seem to me like he had a whole lot going on. This is in our way of thinking like late afternoon. There's still plenty of light and David decides it's time to get up. He takes a walk on what would have been uh, the flat roof of the king's palace. David lives, so he's, he's standing not only on top of a building, but that building stands on top of Jerusalem, topographically speaking. From that vantage point, he can see down into uh, most of the rest of what was at that time a very small city by our uh, way of measuring cities. And, and from his vantage point up there, he sees into, maybe into the house, but probably into the courtyard or maybe even onto the flat roof portion of another house and he sees a woman bathing. We're told that David not only finds her not merely beautiful, but very beautiful. In verse 3, David sends uh, the only other people, only other men who would have been around, whatever servants David needed to take care of him and his needs. He sends people out to figure out who this very beautiful woman is. And he gets word back that that's Bathsheba. And if we would go into the books of Chronicles, we would see that she is the daughter of one of David's best fighters and the wife of one of David's best friends. Uriah is listed among David's mighty men, which this is the the band of brothers that have been, that were running from King Saul back in the day. That's how long Uriah has been With David. Now, David is already married, but to David and really to his countrymen, that's not the problem in this passage. It should have been, but it's not. Jesus lets us know that from the beginning, men were not supposed to take more than one wife. It was never God's plan, God's best, God's design. But throughout the Old Testament, that had become accepted behavior for powerful men to take more than one wife. This is a good reminder that when something becomes acceptable behavior in a society, that does not make it okay. It just doesn't. But for David and his contemporaries, what's one more wife? That would not have been an issue. But when David inquires and finds out that Bathsheba is married to another man, that's a problem for everyone in the passage. God couldn't have been clearer. It's one of the Ten Commandments. In the law, the law of Israel, the law of God, the moral law, the civil law, all the laws, adultery was a sin. And this is with someone who is uh, the daughter and the wife of of people who have been very loyal to David, which, I don't know, it was bad enough as it is. Maybe that makes it worse. In verse 4, David sends messengers to have Bathsheba brought to his palace anyway. And there David uh, initiates a sinful act with Bathsheba. I don't want to call it a sinful relationship because David has no plans on this being a relationship. In the middle of verse 4, this part right here is kind of a parenthesis where it says, when she had purified herself from her uncleanness. This uh, rather uh, woodenly literal translation that I love, but makes it seem like Bathsheba purified herself after she was with David, and that's, that's not what we're being told. Uh, she did that before she came to meet David. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but in the Old Testament law, there were some things that happened to ancient Israelite people that left them what the Bible called ritually unclean. It's not being sinful. You hadn't done anything wrong. This happened to both men and women. Um, And it just meant, it was a way for God to teach, just because you're human, you're not like me. We need to be purified just from our humanity. So even though, like Bathsheba, something happened to her around every 28 days, that left her ceremonially unclean. Not sinful. She hadn't done anything wrong. There's no sin in it. It's just the Bible required, just because we're human, we have to constantly remind ourselves we need to be purified. And so there are purification rituals that ancient Israelites had to go through that made themselves able to rejoin the corporate uh, worship of the nation. Well, guess what those purification rituals required? So, pass some time and bathing, washing. That's the word we're told about what Bathsheba was doing. The reason I think this is important, I've, I've heard this passage taught multiple times. And I've heard blame placed on Bathsheba like she was the evil temptress in this passage. That's not in here. That Bathsheba was immodest. And you know boys will be boys. Like David's still wrong, but listen, there's no but in this passage. You want to know why Bathsheba was bathing? Because she was following the law. Now, Is modesty important? Yes. In the way that we dress and what we expose and to whom, is that important if we want to glorify Christ with our bodies? Yes, it's important. I just wouldn't teach it from this passage. Because the point of this passage is not, it takes two to tango, you know. The point of this passage is David messed up terribly. This passage is about David's sin, period. If we're going to try to read into what Bathsheba wanted in this passage, we're going to have to read stuff that's just not there. Because here's the sad truth. What Bathsheba wanted just didn't matter. We can't read our time period back into this story. It's easy to read this and say, well... You know, she should have been in the shower like a normal person, right? They didn't have indoor plumbing. Like, I think we can assume she was doing this where she always did this. And I don't think she was worried about being seen by men because they weren't supposed to be in town. All the able-bodied men were supposed to be at war. We live in a time where rightly so. Women have some agency, some say over what happens with their body, and that's absolutely correct. And if a man does something to a woman's body she doesn't approve of, he is wrong. That always should have been that way. That's one thing we're finally getting right. But that was not the way it was back then. The reason we're not told what Bathsheba thought about this is because what she thought about what happened to her body didn't make any difference as to whether or not it happened to her body. This passage is about David's sin. David becomes in this passage, and the words are even in here, he becomes like Eve in the garden. You remember where Eve messed up? She looked she desired and she took something God said she shouldn't have. That's what David does. He looked, he desired, and he took what God said he was not allowed to have. And Bathsheba, she sort of didn't matter at all until all of a sudden she did. Because in verse 5, David gets a message. It's just two little Hebrew words. comes across as three in ours. It's the only word she says in this whole saga. I am pregnant. And all of a sudden, David's ready to spring into action to keep tragedy from striking. David's going to try to control this situation he's got on his hands. Because for for David, the tragedy won't happen unless other people find out what he has done. And so the next story is about David and Uriah. Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. and, And David is going to scheme his way into trying to make sure no one finds out what he has done. Because the real tragedy for David, he thinks, will happen if other people find out. Let's read about David and Uriah, verses 6 through 13. After he gets the message, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, the commander of his army, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of David's house with all the servants of David, and he did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And, and my boss, Joab, and the servants, all of your servants, all your troops are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and to drink and, and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do that thing. And David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next day. Then David called him, and he ate and drank before or with David. David made Uriah drunk, and in the evening he went out uh, to lie on the on his bed with his lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So David, he's in damage control mode, trying to keep tragedy from happening. His first plan is, his plan is, I'm going to get Uriah back here so that Uriah sleeps with his wife, and then everyone, including Uriah, will think this child that Bathsheba is carrying is actually Uriah's, not David's. First part of the plan, he has Joab send Uriah back home, Uriah gets there, and David starts to ask him about how the war is going. That's abnormal. Abnormal. Um, This makes me wonder if Uriah thought maybe something was up. It's not that Joab, the commander in the field, and the king back home wouldn't have communicated. They definitely would have. But this would be like asking a brigadier general or a full colonel to carry a message that a private could have carried. Like these guys weren't messengers. But that's the ruse. I just called you back here, give you a weekend pass, ask you how things are going. David tells Uriah, I don't you go home and wash your feet is a euphemism for just enjoy all the comforts of home. We can tell Uriah has taken a vow that he will not enjoy the comforts of home until his men can do the same thing. There's some language of vow. By your soul, by your life, I will not do such things. That's the language of a vow. So that doesn't work. So David decides, uh, well, I'll just give him some more time. Step two is just stick around town with nothing to do for a couple of days. Why would David think that might lead Uriah into temptation? Because that's what got David. Just being around with nothing to do. So he tries that with Uriah. You got to stay here for two days, no orders. he'll weaken only he doesn't so David his last ditch effort in this part of the plan he orders Uriah to come eat with him he uh, you know when you're the king you can order people to eat and drink he, apparently he can get Uriah under the influence but he can't get Uriah fully under his influence He get some drunk but even even Tipsy Uriah won't go home. You know, Uriah, it's, it's, it's not that David is tempting him to do an act which is sinful in and of itself, but Uriah has taken this vow to not do it. So his sin would be simply not keeping his vow. And Uriah, he won't. He refuses to commit a sin that most of us would think isn't that big of a deal. And his king, not so much. David becomes Uriah's tempter if you're keeping track of his list of sins as they come. Well, as soon as it becomes evident to David that Uriah is not going to go home, and be with Bathsheba, David finds himself at yet another crossroads. He's got a decision to make. It's either people are going to find out what I have done, or Uriah has to die and die quickly so that I can legally take Bathsheba as my wife and then people won't think I've done anything wrong. And to our horror, we're about to read David decides causing his death is better than people finding out about my sin. Let's read about David and Joab. Verse 14, now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front of the line of the fiercest battle and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So it was that Joab kept watch on the city and that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men inside that city they were besieging. Verse 17, the men of that city went out and fought against Joab's men and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then David sent and reported to David, excuse me, then Joab sent and reported to David all of the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Why did Joab do that? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? What are you, stupid? This didn't seem like a very good plan. I'm adding a little stuff of my own there. Verse 21, don't you remember when they struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? You haven't learned anything? Why did you go so near the wall? Hey, if David starts to say that stuff to you, Then you shall say to them, hey, more bad news, boss. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the uh, king's servants are also dead and P.S. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So, when David realizes Uriah is not going to go home, he writes out instructions for Uriah's death, wraps that up, puts his own seal on it, and sends that message back with Uriah. Uriah has to carry his own death warrant and hand it to Joab. Doesn't that seem like an unnatural risk for David to take? Why wouldn't he send it with someone else? How does he know Uriah won't open that and read it? Because Uriah has demonstrated how upright of a man he is. David doesn't want to send it with anyone else. Anyone else might open it up and read it, but he knows his buddy Uriah won't. The plan is this. David orders Uriah to do something militarily speaking is really stupid. Go attack that fortified city. By the way, we've already learned it's a siege. You know how you win a siege? You don't do anything. You just don't let any food inside and starve them out. It's like, well, do this really stupid thing. Go attack. And all those people that are furious in there, they'll get some stress out. And they'll attack back. And as soon as they start attacking, make sure Uriah is in the front line draw everyone else back so we know he dies. Now, Joab sends a message back home to David to let him know this plan has worked. Was there some stuff in verses like 19 through 21 that's a little confusing to you? If there is, good. David and Joab's plan has worked on you as well as it's supposed to work on whoever else. See, Joab doesn't know but what someone might open this message and read it. You can't trust everybody like you can trust Uriah. If Joab orders this foolish attack on a fortified city, that there has to have been people in the army going, well, this seems dumb. What are we doing this for? And then he sends a message home that says, good news, boss, Uriah's dead. Will that turn some heads? Of course it will. So that gets buried in all this other mumbo-jumbo. It's all just, look over here, look over here. Uriah's dead. Don't miss this though. It's not only Uriah that dies. Verse 17. Some of the people among David's servants fell. Other soldiers died too. And they have wives And mamas and daddies and kids. But remember, for David, the tragedy doesn't start unless someone else finds out what I did. After David receives that message, let's read the rest of the passage, which should say 25 through 27. Then David said to the messenger, Here's what you should go say tell Joab. Do not let this thing displease you. for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encouraged Joab. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became David's wife. Then she bore him that son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David receives the message that Uriah is dead amongst all that other stuff. He tells this messenger, hey, go back and tell Joab this. You know, you win some, you lose somebody. Don't be so hard on yourself. We'll get him next time. But I want you to know, A very literal translation of the first thing David says. So thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing, and literally the Hebrew says, don't let this thing be evil in your sight or be evil in your eyes. Now look down at the last sentence in the chapter. But the thing that David done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, it really doesn't matter what David can get other people to believe when the God of heaven already knows. Don't let this be. That's David's whole goal. He doesn't want what he has done to seem evil in the eyes of everyone else. But the things that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the meantime... Bathsheba mourns her husband and David does something else that I want you to know people around Jerusalem would have thought, man, that David is a great guy. Life is really hard for widows in ancient Israel. David didn't just leave Bathsheba alone. He just brought her right into the palace and made her one of his wives. Isn't that nice? Seems like David got away with it. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes or in the sight of the Lord. That's the end of our uncomfortable, unpalatable, unsettling story for today. As I said in the beginning, I think one major effect, impact this should have on us is we should all be saying in our hearts, I could never do that. Could I? The answer to that has to be yes, you could, unless you are willing to say you are more morally upright, faithful, and have more, you know, self-discipline and control than David. We need to be aware we have within ourselves the ability to fail in spectacular ways. Yes, even you Now, I don't want to sound fatalistic when I say that. What I mean is, the fact that we are all capable of failing in spectacular ways is not the same way, not the same thing as saying we are all going to fail in spectacularly awful ways. Because that's not true. We are capable of it, but we are not destined to it. It's not that we can't help it, so we just, well, get get it over with. No. In fact, admitting that we would be capable of it in the right situation or the wrong situation is a big part of keeping ourselves from actually doing it. If we feel like I can handle it, I'll never do that. We've taken a, a good step toward actually doing it. So, how do we protect ourselves from failing in spectacularly painful ways? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, just a few minutes. If David could fail like that, couldn't I? The answer is yes. Now, if that's true, how do I keep myself from falling into sin? An old Puritan guy in the 1700s named John Owen once said this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Listen, sin still causes death. Sometimes it causes physical death. But even when it doesn't, it causes spiritual death, separation It causes relational death. It just lets the stuff of death seep into our lives. And the point of John Owen's statement here is if we're not intentionally trying to prevent, trying to kill, trying to stamp out sin, we're going to let that death overtake our lives, which we don't want. Another way to think of this uh, concept would be this. Like sin happens, but it doesn't just happen. Like sin happens, but it doesn't just happen. Things happen that lead me to a place where the sin happened. How do we make sure sin doesn't happen? I just want to give you four, four ways. I see just from this passage, there's other ways, there's other things, but just from David here, how do we be about the, the business of killing sin? Number one, Doing what we ought to do is often the best way to keep from doing what we ought not do. Doing what we ought to do is often the best way to keep ourselves from doing what we ought not to do. I see this in David at the beginning. Had David been where he probably should have been, out with his men in the field, none of this happens. Had David been busy doing what was good, he wouldn't even have been, had to worry about being tempted with what was evil. That's true for you and me as well. A good exercise in your life might be this. Make a list of the things that I know before God are the most important things in my life. We should make that list. then we should get busy, stay busy, working on that list. Is your marriage important to you? It's important to God, so it should be important to you. Well, how do I stay busy serving my spouse, loving my spouse? Are your kids important to you? How do I stay busy teaching, supporting my kids? This is why I encourage people to stay in the Bible, get in the Bible every day, read the word, right? Uh, because it helps us stay busy doing what's good. It's where we learn what is good. I, I was gifted some time ago, some really, a couple of really nice, like bound devotionals. If you don't have something that you are reading every day, I'd love to give you one of those. Just holler at me. Stay busy doing what we ought to sometimes the best way from to keep us from doing what we shouldn't do and we won't even know what maybe we could have run into second understand your personal weaknesses and don't play with that fire understand your weaknesses and don't play with fire we each need to understand what our weaknesses are what areas will I stray in if I am not careful Maybe for you, like David, it is in the area of sexual sin. But it doesn't have to be. Please don't read this and think, well, that's, you know, I don't have that problem, uh, so I'm good. You got a problem. I don't know what it is. Maybe it isn't the physical part of that. Maybe Maybe it's the fantasy part of just constantly imagining a life that is better than the one that you currently have. That discontent. A spouse that's better, a house that's better, a stuff that's better, whatever. Don't play with that fire. Maybe, it is, maybe it's greed, maybe it's laziness, may I don't know what I don't know what your weakness is, but you've got one. We need to know what it is, and then don't play with that fire. We need to understand sin is much more like fire than it is like grout. And that illustration might require some explanation. You know what grout is? If you've ever had tile put in your house, a black backsplash, a floor, whatever, when you first lay tile, there's these gaps around the tile. And grout is that sandy cement stuff that gets shoved in the gaps. And the reason grout is used, the great thing about, gap, or about grout, is that you basically want have to put it in there once and that gap is filled forever. Sin's not like grout. You know, part of temptation is trying to get us to buy the lie that sin's like grout. If I, here's, I'm missing something, I need something, I have this, whatever, and that sin will fill that. It will satisfy that. If I only had this, if I would just do that, if I had more, What? that'll fill... No, it won't. Sin is like fire. The more you feed it, the hotter it gets. It grows and grows. We, David's a great example of this. David was so upright in so many areas of his life. He's a giant of the faith. He just had this one weakness that he didn't understand. And he didn't understand that weakness it was like fire. It would grow. We know from already in this book and elsewhere in the scriptures, David was David had multiple wives. He also had concubines. Let me be frank with you access to sex was not a problem for this dude. It also wasn't enough. You know why? Because you can't kill sin by feeding it, it just grows and grows and consumes. Understand your weakness. And don't play with that fire. Sin has to be starved for it to die. Not fed. Third, take the off-ramps. Take the off-ramps. Sin happens, but it doesn't just happen. Right? So, In this story, by the time David finds himself alone with Bathsheba, listen, it is true that at some point you get to a point in your human nature where you can't help it. You will sin. That's absolutely true. But by the time you get to that point, you are 75 bad decisions down the path toward the sin. And there was an off-ramp beforehand. For David, leaving aside the fact that he should have just been where he should have been and then he wouldn't have to worry about it. But when he saw Bathsheba on that roof, off-ramp, find something else to do, tell someone what you're struggling with, whatever. But he inquires and he thinks and he plans and he schemes. Take the off-ramps because, number four, finally. I've got to recognize my sin as the tragedy. Recognize my sin as the tragedy. We're supposed to flee from temptation. Why? Because sin's a tragedy. It kills. It hurts. It hurts others. It hurts you, whether you know it or not. And the tragedy is actually the sin. What did David think the sin, was, the tragedy was? Only if someone finds out. Anytime we get there, the tragedy will be if someone else finds out, we will just be stacking sin upon our sin, which is stacking more tragedy on our existing tragedy. And you do the mental exercise of thinking through that and you will find it's true. He thought he could avoid avoid the tragedy by keeping others from knowing, which led for him to tempting others, deceiving others, murdering others. And that will always be the case. The tragedy is not that someone else found out. The tragedy is the sin. So we recognize sin is the tragedy. we get that far, we go back to number one. So I'm going to keep myself busy doing what I should do so I don't fall into what I shouldn't. I understand what my weakness is and I don't play with that fire and I take every off ramp. Why? Because sin is a tragedy. And then when I do sin, because I will. When I have failed to kill sin through prevention, it's still time to kill sin. Even after the sin. I can't kill and prevent the sin I just sinned, but I can prevent the one that's going to be added to it by covering up and adding more sin. I kill sin then through confession and repentance. And we'll talk more about that next week when we study David moving forward. I know maybe some sermons might not be applicable to you. This one ain't it. This one is applicable to you. Even you. Sin kills, it hurts, it destroys. And it's a tragedy. Let's pray. Father God, um, we are a collection of sinners. Thank you that you have forgiven us. You will forgive us of any sin we sin. But God, it still is a tragedy, even if it is forgiven. So help us, Lord, to treat sin as a tragedy, to stay busy doing what we ought, um, to just to not make those excuses for ours, to, to take the off-ramps, to not play with that fire, but to starve it. God, not so that we might have a righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is in Christ. But just so that we can avoid more tragedy and regret and hurt to ourselves and our families and those around us. Thank you for your forgiveness of all of our sins in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.